dozens of Christians are massacred, not killed with a, you know, hygienically with a bullet. I mean, machete to death, locked in their churches and burned alive. Today, I sit down with Raymond Ibrahim, author of the new book, Defenders of the West. For decades, Ibrahim has been tracking persecution of Christians in Muslim-majority countries. He says this pattern has become so routine, so widespread, and violent that it constitutes what he calls a drip genocide. We discuss the history of Christians in the Middle East, growing anti-Christian sentiment in the West, and the false narratives perpetuated by much of media, academia, Hollywood, and international organizations like the UN. Whether it's uh, Islamic radicalization or extremism, or whether it's you know this militant leftism, Christians have quickly fallen out of favor. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Raymond Ibrahim, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me, Jan. Good to be with you. We're going to talk about Christian persecution in the Middle East and beyond that even. Uh, today, you're, you're an expert on such things. I want to congratulate you on your new book, Defenders of the West. And frankly, I was surprised to find one defender of the West, uh, Jan Sobieski Czechi or John Sobieski III, Jan Sobieski III, um, absent kind of very, very strangely, given that he led the, uh, the Polish and uh, Lithuanian forces at the Battle of Vienna in 1683, which was certainly a very massive defense of the West. So maybe I'll just get you to start there, because that's a little bit of my uh, yeah. Polish history. <laughs> sure, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. He, he completely and totally fits into, he has a place in that book, he should have a place, Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam. So you can, of course, that's a subtitle, understand why he definitely belongs in there. But I do explain in the introduction, I did not include him because my, the predecessor book, Sword and Scimitar, that I wrote, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West, which uh, circulates around eight of the most decisive battles between Islam and the West, the first from the year 636, the last 1683, and even beyond the Barbary Wars in the United States. Um, chapter eight, the longest chapters, is dedicated to Jan Sobieski. So he gets his place, just not in the new book, in, in, the, in the previous book he gets it. Well, it looks like I have some more reading yeah. <laughs> to do. So now you have to read both books. Well, and so tell me a little bit about how you came to be an expert on this topic that, you know, just actually generally isn't covered very much. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with my own personal upbringing and background and also my professional academic training. Um, my family hails from Egypt. Um, we're what's called Coptic Christians, the, basically the indigenous uh, inhabitants of Egypt, the oldest, uh, technically the uh, descendants of the pharaohs because the Coptic language is still the pharaonic language with a different alphabet, um, Greek alphabet. At any rate, um, you know, after the Islamic conquest, and that's a whole long story we can get into, but of course Egypt is a Muslim majority nation now and the, the Christians, the Copts are a minority, but they're also the largest minority in the entire Middle East of, of Christians. And uh, my parents left Egypt in part because of the entrenched discrimination. It's gotten so much worse now. It's not just discrimination, it's violence, uh, you know, outright murder and burning churches and a long list we can discuss. Um, but I was born in the United States, so growing up here, I was aware of what was happening in Egypt to, uh, you know, the cops. And, and then, I, so I developed a natural interest, obviously, because it's personally related to me and my family. Um, then in college, I went to college and I studied history. And uh, I, I focused on the, middle, uh, the medieval era, also the classics. And I had uh, Victor Davis Hanson was my professor. Uh, we're talking now about a quarter of a century ago. 
and I'm happy to say, you know, we're still friends, and uh, I still see him as a mentor. He he wrote a forward. He wrote the forward. Yeah, wrote the forward to my yeah. last book. Yeah. So that's great. He was a great, uh, you know, professor to have at the time. Um, and so, as you probably know, he one of his fields was military history. So I also gravitated towards that. And my master's degree, and he was the chair of my uh, thesis committee, was the first battle between Muslims and Christians, the Battle of Yarmouk in the year 636. And I did it for, of course, also linguistic reasons because I was studying uh, Greek and Arabic, and those were the main sources that you needed to know, you know, Byzantine Greek and the classics of Arabic. So I was able to put together a thesis, and uh, everything seemed very academic for me until the, the, the think, I think the same month my thesis was published uh, was 9-11, September uh, 11, 2001. And immediately what I noticed and what caught my attention when I started reading contemporary sources about Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and these groups, which I never really focused on, I was focused on history, what immediately caught my eye was the immense continuity with their own words and their worldview with what I was writing about from almost 14 centuries. Um, and then, uh, you know, to make a long story short, I decided to stay in this and, and Victor encouraged me and I, I came out to DC uh, and went to Georgetown University and uh, studied a little bit there. Uh, it was, I, I, was, I was young then, I didn't realize um, how politically charged things like uh, the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies in Georgetown was. Um, and um, I actually got A's, but I also uh, ruffled some feathers amongst my professors who didn't like my viewpoints which uh, to me were just being objective. Um, at any rate, I, I decided to leave Georgetown, I was going to, but then I got an internship at the Library of Congress in the uh, Middle Eastern Division. I mean, the Library of Congress is a great place because it's the largest repository of books from all around the world. So while I was there, um, I, I got Arabic writings from Al-Qaeda that would pass through my hands, and I started reading them by Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri, and uh, this, at the time, the narrative that the media, the Western media was sharing with us, they would tell us that Al-Qaeda was angry and they did 9-11 because I mean, they'd give you a whole list of grievances from supporting Israel uh, you know, to mocking Muhammad, whatever. It was always a grievance and, and, and they would say, we're attacking you because you attacked us. And these were all uh, relayed by CNN and all the big media. They, they would interview Osama, people like Peter Bergen, and then give you the whole grievance mantra. And then I came across the Arabic writings that were written by Al-Qaeda to fellow Muslims, which most Westerners are not obviously privy to or cannot were not accessible to them. And they said the exact opposite. They basically now sounded like ISIS, the Islamic State. And they basically said, yeah, we, we, we tell them about grievances, but we hate them because they're infidels. It's our law, it's our religion to wage jihad until the whole world is subjugated. And you know, that's a whole other thing we can discuss about doctrine. And so I took those Arabic writings and put them together. And it was my first book. It came out in 2007 called The Al-Qaeda Reader. And actually that helped change the narrative and the discussion about what Islamic groups wanted because before then, like I said, everyone was just, ba we had to rely on CNN telling us why they're angry. So back to my original interest, which was my own family and Christians in the Middle East, um, I fused all that together and I started focusing on writing about and trying to uh, shed light on the plight of Christian minorities. Really, you know, there's the, the, the rise of Christian persecution is now in many countries, but still the lion's share is the Islamic world. It's probably 80 percent, 
If you look at uh, the statistics that come from think tanks like Open Doors and World Watch List, they rank you know, the 50 worst nations to be a Christian. Habitually, the, the top 10 are like eight or nine are Muslim nations. So I started writing about that, and I still do. I wrote a book in 2013, uh, Crucified Again, Exposing Islam's New War on Christians. And what's interesting also at, at that time, in 2011, I started writing a report for the Gatestone Institute, monthly report, where I, I collate and I go through, and, and it's never major media sources. It could be Arabic sources or alternate media. But, but I check my sources, and I collate every month all the violence or discrimination that Muslims commit against Christians. And, and I said, I'm going to create it and write one report a month. And when I did that at the time, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm going to come to a month one day and there's just nothing to report. It's been uh, 11 years and that has never happened. And the report gets longer and longer and it's one to two dozen anecdotes of violence, murder, in the name of Islam, vis-a-vis -vis Christians. All of them, if this was the opposite, if it was a Christian or a Westerner doing that to a Muslim, would be all over the news. We forget that, you know, if you, in the 7th century, when Islam was born, uh, if you looked at the Christian world, three-quarters of it was actually conquered and Islamized uh, until today. So when we hear Egypt and Syria, or, you know, Libya, North Africa, uh, Morocco, you know, Iraq, Turkey, we forget that in the 7th century, that's where Christianity was centered. There were five seas, and Rome was only one of them. You had Alexandria, Antioch, Jerusalem. Uh, Constantinople, all of those were swallowed up by, by Islam. Um, so what we're seeing today happening to Christians, I believe, is just a continuation. In some areas where, you know, uh, St. Augustine comes from Carthage, Tunisia, you know, that was a bastion of Christianity. Is, uh, Christianity has been completely snuffed out there. Uh, in Egypt, you know, you had the, the Christians, the Copts, and they were a very large and powerful um, population. That They've been reduced to about 10, 15 percent of the population. So we're still seeing you know, the this, this same kind of uh, shrinkage. Uh, it, it, in other words, the same, and it's, I call it the drip, drip genocide, or, because it doesn't happen overnight. So you're, you know, you've actually kind of started uh, telling me what my next question is, which is really just, if you could give me kind of a general overview of the state of Christian persecution, again, because it's just something that most people aren't generally aware of, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I'll, I'll just begin again because I, we won't understand it, the modern idea unless we go to the historical aspects briefly. So, as I was saying in the 7th century, that's where Christianity was in, the, in North, uh, what we call MENA, Middle East, Middle East North Africa. Um, 7th century conquests, we know them as the Arab conquests, they come, sweep in, and from the death of the Prophet Muhammad in 632, uh, one century later, 732, which is the Battle of Tours, Islam had essentially swept through all of North Africa, from Egypt to Morocco, all of uh, the Middle East proper, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, and was, had conquered Spain, you know, people forget about that, and was now midway into Europe, uh, into France by, by Tours. So that's the conquest. Now when you look what happened to Christians, um, Islamic law, what we, or Sharia, as it's known, Sharia, um, is very detailed and it tells you everything, how, how to treat, you know, different peoples. And it's important, again, this is why I go to history, because sometimes what I'm going to tell you, people will say, well, this is doctrinal, abstract, old, musty, scriptural books. You know, people can interpret them any way. But that's actually what happened historically. Basically, uh, the people of the book, as Christians and Jews specifically were called, including in the Quran, had three choices during the conquest, to convert, and become, you know, like an equal citizen. 
or to accept what's called uh, become a dhimmi, uh, which is this technical term, which just basically means you're a second class citizen and you pay tribute. And then there's a host of, of discriminatory measures that are leveled against you. You can't build a church, for example, or a synagogue. You can't um, you know, proselytize. You can't show your cross in public. If a Muslim wants your seat, you have to get up and give it to him. So that was all historical things that happened. Okay. Now you fast forward to today, and believe it or not, many of those elements are still enshrined in, in various Egyptian, I'm sorry, Islamic countries. Uh, take Egypt, for example. In the Constitution, its second article says that our, the Constitution is, traces back and makes use of Sharia, Islamic law. You have the situation, um, you know, I'm, I'm here, I was uh, at a conference, Coptic Solidarity, uh, which is based in D.C., and uh, it's a humanitarian organization which exists to shed, plight, uh, shed light on the plight of the cops and uh, you know we, we've been meeting with various um, senators and so forth and you know even they get surprised to hear how bad it is but because it's so entrenched the discrimination the persecution it just permeates all of Egyptian society and other Muslim nations in general because essentially you're saying it's doctrinal in many cases it's doctrinal and it gets codified and it becomes part of the Constitution so I'll give you one example um, churches okay according to Islamic teaching you're not, you're not supposed to build churches. That's against Islamic teaching. If a church exists, you can let it stay there until it completely crumbles, okay? Um, so in a nation like Egypt, it is pulling teeth for the cops to try to build one church. And um, I just got statistics recently from an Arabic source. Something like, in e okay, so Egypt, uh, the Coptic minority population is anywhere from 10 to 15%, and then the rest are mostly Sunni Muslims. Um, there's something like half a million mosques and um, addresses and prayer halls for Muslims, okay? The cops have 3,000 churches, okay? They should have 50,000 churches, not 3,000. And because of that, you know, some of these, the, the churches are often in someone's home and it's, uh, it, it becomes a fire hazard. Last month, uh, 11 churches caught fire and uh, they all claim, the, the government claims- In it was Egypt. Just, in Egypt, that it was just faulty wiring. One of them, uh, 40 people were killed, women and children, uh, the priest as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's rather telling and curious that Egypt is also the one nation that's probably had more, Muslim, uh, more churches bombed and burned in the modern era than any nation in the world. The Muslim Brotherhood in 2012 attacked almost 100 churches in one week after the ousting of Morsi. And then when there's some moderate elements in Egypt or another country, who does allow the building of a church, then the mob acts up and they'll bomb the church, you know, Molotov cocktails and things of that nature. And then of course you have the terrorist element. In Egypt, uh, I, I did the math and I think something like maybe 10 churches have been bombed by professional terrorists with hundreds of uh, Christians killed. Does that mean every Egyptian is a terrorist? Of course not. And even the government combats the terrorists, but because it goes back to Islamic law that the infidel, the kafir, as is known in, in Arabic, is second-class citizen, and you know they should just be grateful that they're alive. Don't don't rock the boat. Don't try to build churches. Because of that, from top to bottom, they're just all this is ignored. And uh, like I said, it permeates every aspect, every rung of society. It's, it's in very interesting to me because it creates a kind of a complex situation. On one hand. The authorities do deal with it to some extent. Right. We're saying, but on the other hand, 
they're basically culturally and doctrinally there's resistance to that and right. sort of it's going to push and pull from both sides. Right. So, yeah. so for example, the curriculum, Egypt, Pakistan, uh, Turkey, Iran, it comes out in reports from, you know, uh, think tanks and, and NGOs in the West because they do surveys of their curriculum, that, that what they teach their children. And they, they'll teach them un, not, things not unlike what ISIS says, that the, the non-Muslim is our innate enemy. You can never really befriend them. Uh, if you do, it's for some ulterior motive. So basically, radical teaching, children are, are, in, are indoctrinated by it in these Islamic nations, including ones that you would think are moderate, like Indonesia. Same thing happens there. Um, and then they grow up. So, um, you know, in, the, in that climate, it's very hard when that child becomes an adult. Well, they, it's ingrained in their head. And you know, I'll leave you with one last example, I think that's very pertinent, just to show you how ingrained this sort of thing, and from Egypt again, um, a child was uh, born and um, you know, he was found in a Coptic church, day old, and, and the theory was you know, some Coptic mom had him out of wedlock and out of shame she just left him in a church hoping someone would find him. So the church entrusted the child to a uh, barren couple, older couple, I think they were at the time 40, 50, and uh, they named, you know, they gave him a name, they baptized him, they raised him, he was their pride and joy for four years. Then the state got wind of it, and they actually seized the child from them, gave him a Muslim name, sent him to an orphanage. And you ask why? Well, because when it's all said and done, Islam teaches that all, it's called fitra. Every human, when you're born, you're actually a Muslim by nature. Until, unless your parents change you, but if they're, if they're your biological parents, that's fine. But in this case, they have to assume he was born a Muslim, so we can't give him to this family who are cops. So that's just one little, you know, kind of a heartbreaking example, because if you know what orphanages in Egypt are like, you know, it's not somewhere you want to be, and he had a loving, you know, family taking care of him. So that's how ingrained these sorts of things are um, in the entire society and the government, as in this case. There's typically a distinction made between Islamism, right, and which is radical Islam that leads to, you know, terrorism and so forth, and Islam. You know, how do you see that distinction? I believe it's important to make a distinction, and it's true. I mean, look around you. There's obviously what you would call moderate Muslims. I, for one, don't think every single Muslim is screaming jihad or anything like that. So I do believe there is a distinction. But the dishonesty in that paradigm is that it presupposes that true Islam is problem is is problem free, but when you dig in the sources as I did, it's the Tatars, the Mo the Mongols, the uh, Turks, the Arabs, the Berbers. All of them rationalized what they were doing according to these jihadist principles. That you're the infidel. You are by nature my enemy. I have to fight you. I have to subjugate you. Now, does that mean every single Muslim today thinks that way, wants to do this, etc., uh, or Muslims who just interpret the religion any way they want, which you have in all religions? So that does reformers, or re reformers, sure, yeah. they're out there. Okay, so yeah, there's room for reform. There's definitely room for moderate Muslims. I can't help but think, you know, the the Crusades, right? Were not, uh, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, right? That every every religion, maybe not every religion, but Christianity certainly isn't, uh, I guess, problem-free when it comes to the general realm of this kind of behavior, right? Yeah, but the fact is the Crusades and Bernard Lewis, the, you know, the great historian, he, as he once said it, it was, a, it was a belated response to the Jihad. 
because uh, aside from what I mentioned, you know, the, the, so, you know, the, in, in the 600s, that's when that massive jihad takes over most of Christendom and the Crusades begin in 1095. So you have almost, you know, 350, 400 years. But at any rate, the Crusades, right before the Crusades, the Seljuk Turks were running amok in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. Asia Minor, of course, was one of the oldest Christian regions. It's where St. Paul sent most of his epistles. And um, right before the, the, the First Crusade, according to the primary contemporary sources, including Muslim sources, you had anywhere between ten, tens, but at least tens, but possibly hundreds of thousands of Christians were either butchered outright or in, enslaved in, re, in really gruesome ways. According to, in, in, in Armenia alone, in the, about 1070, you had a thousand churches destroyed in one city, in Ani. Uh, one Muslim source says, I, I tried to walk after the conquest and I couldn't walk because for miles there were just dead bodies of Christians slaughtered everywhere. Okay, so that was going on right before the First Crusade and the emperor of Constantinople, the Eastern Roman Emperor Alexius, he actually because of that and the Muslims had reached where he was, called and begged the Western Christians to come. But of course today, um, you know, it's, it's, if you mention, you know, historic hostilities between Muslims and Christians, virtually everyone will remember the Crusades and they'll bring it out in a vacuum. As if, so if you don't know what happened in the preceding 400 years or the preceding decades under the Seljuks, it will just seem like a bunch of you know, European xenophobes who want trying to colonize the Middle East. And, and a lot of these men, uh, you know, I discussed them in my book, Defenders of the West, they actually uh, sacrificed so much because a lot of them were nobles, kings, emperors, and they would fund this. And, they would, and, and some of them would die and lose their kingdoms. Now, did they fight cruelly and were there atrocities? Of course, but in many, in, it, it was a tit for tat. So what, you know, what you're hoping to do is to basically provide the entire context of this, yeah. you know, the reality of these terrible times. Right, because if you don't know the history, and I think this is by design, what I'm saying now really uh, transcends my particular topic and field of Islam. So, you know, for example, um, trying to insist and prove that America's very racist, right? And then they'll talk about the slave trade, which is true. Um, but then they won't tell you that, well, you know, Europeans, 10 to 15 million were actually enslaved by Muslims, many of them from Africa, okay? And they don't want you to know that something like slave, slavery, for example, was done by everyone. And if anything, probably uh, white slavery of not whites was, you know, the, the, the least when it came to numbers. And they won't tell you that it was white Christians and missionaries who actually abolished slavery. Uh, where it, whereas it was still going on, for example, in the Islamic world. So I think history is a potent uh, tool and uh, much is being done to just suppress it, make people ignorant of it, and then present a false history. So let's go to the present now. What do things look like in the, in the um, Middle East? For, you know, for Christians? Christians? Okay. Um, it, they don't look good at all. Uh, there is, there's actually been a rise in persecution around the world. So even nations that before uh, we're not engaged in this are such as India so and a lot of it is tied up with um, national religious nationalism so Hindu nationalism in India apparently some Buddhists in, in Myanmar or Burma uh, also are engaged in this but like I said the lion's share of it comes from the Islamic world so if you look at the top 50 nations as um, various human rights organizations have categorized them I've, and, I've, and I've counted them numbers something like 38 to 40 will be Muslim nations out of the 50. Um, and so 
Right now, uh, you know, in, in certain nations in Nigeria, you have what's been, uh, been categorized uh, or defined as a genocide against Christians. And I follow that, as I was mentioning, I write that Gates don't report every month. And every month in Nigeria, dozens of Christians are massacred, not, not killed with a, you know, hygienically with a bullet. I mean, they're just machete to death, locked in their churches and burned alive, okay? And uh, so that's just one nation in Nigeria, and that's not considered the worst. And, uh, but other nations, you know, it's the government. In Iran, for example, it's not so much the people, the Shia Muslim population that's, um, you know, extreme. It's the Islamic Republic of Iran itself, which if they find Christians, they arrest them, they throw them in jail, and sometimes they disappear, they get killed in jail. So my point is you have it from the terrorists, you have it from the governments, you have it from the, the populace, the masses, when they hear, for example, a church is being built for whatever reason, or even renovated, they go, they riot, they attack, they burn the church, they kill. And one of the sadder things that I've been noticing is that Western elements not only don't acknowledge us, but almost aid and abet it. And I'll just give you one example. We know about the migrant crisis, of course, which really you know, picked up in 2015. And uh, you had millions of Muslims just go around Western nations, especially Europe. Supposedly the crisis was uh, started by the Islamic State, which is a Sunni organization. So it's not going to attack or kill Sunni Muslims, okay? Um, but what happened is something like 99% of the Muslims that went into Europe and that were accepted without even being vetted were Sunni Muslims who were portrayed as persecuted victims, including in the United States. And Christians who actually were, and Yazidis, and you know, all these, and even Shias, who were being attacked were virtually like 0.01% of the people that uh, Europe would take in, and America. And a lot of people thought, well, maybe that's just a, a you know, coincidence or whatever. But more and more cases have been coming out where Germany will take in 1.5 million Muslims, and uh, it most recently took in 10,000 uh, Afghanis, and Afghans the number one ranked most violent nation towards Christians, and they take them unvetted. But uh, an Iranian man very recently who was trying to, who's been in Germany and for asylum because he converted to Christianity, and he's being sent back to Iran for, to, to mo you know, certainly punishment, possibly death. Okay, but that's not a singular, um, you know, anecdote in the in the United the UK the UK's United Kingdom's Home Office, which deals with migration. Habitually, they'll take in Muslims who are on record expressing their radicalization, and they'll allow them entry, and then they will do involve themselves in in terror crimes and kill people in England, and then the Christians who are one every I don't know how many thousand, they that's when they say no, you can't come in because of whatever reason. You know, we've done quite a bit of coverage of this, uh, of, you know, what's the Christian persecution in Nigeria, for example. So I'm aware of this situation, but sort of in, in general, even among, you know, human rights organizations, um, this topic isn't really front and center usually. Mm. Yeah. No, no, it's not, you know, to, to the left or to liberals, in as much as they like to talk about how they, uh, you know, care about the human rights of others. It, it, it almost seems like they want to protect any and everyone except a Christian, because a Christian seems too close to them, and they want to show you that, oh, I'm not being tribalistic. I, I much prefer to go help, you know, a Hindu or a Buddhist or anyone. But Christian just seems like, oh, I'm, I'm picking my religion, and I'm helping them. So I think that, ironically, puts Christians at the you know, end of the barrel in many ways, and I, I've, I've sensed that. 
Um, it's this need to show I'm, I'm progressive. I, I, you know, I'll help someone of a different background. Um, that's definitely one of the reasons. But you're also seeing, you know, the, you know, you've heard, you've heard, you hear about the war on Christ, Christians in America, the war on Christmas, and all that sort of thing, which, of course, is nothing compared to what I'm discussing, which is out and out violence and prison terms and just terrorism. But it seems to me that there's, you know, it's a slippery slope. And uh, here in the West and in America, I, you know, I was reading about all the, you know, some women, Christian women, who fled from Muslim countries and went to some European nation and they, they were granted asylum. And now at work they get fired because their little cross, for example, shows. And they just can't believe it. They're like, we fled from something and we thought we were going to a country that can appreciate this. And it's not, it's almost like being in an Islamic country. So whether it's uh, Islamic radicalization uh, or extremism or whether it's you know, this militant leftism, uh, you know, Christians have quickly fallen out of favor, uh, to put it mildly. There's, you have to admit, there's a hatred for Christianity that's growing in the West, an animosity, um, you know, this insistence on portraying it as, you know, the root of all evil because it's the white man's religion and, you know, he exploited it to do whatever. Uh, you know, these, these tropes are very popular and embedded, not least because of Hollywood, but also academia. Uh, this is the sort of thing that's being taught. This is a, you know, very, very troubling picture that you're painting. Um, in the Middle East, in speaking with folks on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, for example, I've been told that there's places like uh, Bahrain, for example, or South Sudan was another example that was offered to me, I think, you know, maybe a year, a year and a half ago, where, uh, you know, religious tolerance is on the rise for Christians as, as well as others. Where is this the case? I don't really know of any Muslim country where the indigenous Christians can boast of anything like that. This is usually afforded to Westerners. So Bahrain, for example, as you mentioned, yeah, it's, it's rarely this. Does, does this country come into any kind of scrutiny as a, as a Christian persecuting nation? But it's also a very popular <laughs> resort for Westerners. Some of the nations that aren't that bad, but again, are listed would be, for example, Uzbekistan and Tajik, you know, Central Asian nations. Um, but they're still considered violators of human rights and they do persecute Christians and so forth. But nothing like, you know, other nations. There are a few organizations that uh, are working to help the persecuted Christians. I think one is called Help the Persecuted Christians. Um, what about some of these multilateral organizations that are out there? What are they doing? Yeah, so the, the greater and the bigger and the larger ones of them are actually, I would argue, part of the problem. Um, you know, we were discussing how little known this issue is in the West, but I'll give you one example of how the United Nations, for example, and other uh, you know, political large European entities have dealt with this issue. We're all familiar with the attack in, uh, I believe it was 2019, March 15th, where a Australian man in New Zealand shot up a mosque and killed 51 um, Muslims. Now, of course, that's a horrific thing and everyone condemned it. And then uh, just this last March, the UN decided to, on the anniversary of this atrocity, to create a uh, combat Islamophobia day. And they got up and talked about how Islamophobia is entrenched and look at what happened on that day and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. I actually did a study and I looked at, um, you know, just in the last 10 years, how many times did Muslims enter churches and kill Christians? Now, this is above and beyond just regular Muslim terrorism, 9-11 and killing people in that sense. Just exclusively, uh, you know, a sort of an analogous situation where Muslims burned a church, bombed the church or went in and shot up 
the church, much like this Australian fellow did. And I counted how many people, Christians were killed in their churches, and it came out to at least over 1,000, okay? So compare 1,000 to 50, that's 1 to 20, all right? Has the UN ever said uh, we have an anti, uh, you know, let's combat Christian phobia day? No, the UN and all those groups, the European Parliament as well, uh, which I've been following. So they're taking actual patterns of violence because in these attacks on Christians and churches, they happen to various countries. It was in Pakistan, it was uh, in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, all Muslims attacking Christians, Egypt, Nigeria, of course, uh, Syria, Iraq, Turkey, but they won't acknowledge that in each one of these attacks, if they even talk about it, they'll say, no, this is, has nothing to do with Islam, uh, this is not hate, whereas, of course, the, the Australian man, he's a racist, he's a hater. They won't say this is Islamic supremacy. It's, they've gone as far as to say now that climate change is what's forcing Muslims to kill Christians. So, so in other words, where there is a real pattern of Muslims persecuting Christians, these large, powerful international organizations like the UN try everything to just you know, scrub that out of your, you know, out of your worldview. They're trying to just dominate and control the narrative. So now it's the Christians who are violent because they attack the Muslims. And there's other, you know, there's other examples I can give you as well. One other quick one is um, uh, the European Parliament. They actually, I don't know, you, perhaps you're familiar with a young woman named Deborah Emmanuel in Nigeria, and she was actually stoned to death and then burned, possibly alive, because she said something that was misconstrued or, or, or apparently some, a Muslim man wanted to date her and she didn't, so he accused her of blasphemy and everyone in, in a college, higher education, stoned her and burned her. But at the U European Parliament, the, the, the right wing wanted to vote just to talk about religious persecution in the context of what happened to this young lady and what's happening in Nigeria. And the left, basically the leftist type parties, the European Parliament, voted it down. They didn't want to talk about it. They don't want to acknowledge it's happening. So it's very telling. Well, Raymond Ibrahim, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on. Thank you all for joining Raymond Ibrahim and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kalik. 